We need patience and proper purpose. You can't eat green tomatoes, okay? You have to wait until they ripe. You have to plant them in the right season. This kind of logic is obvious to all of us. Maybe we should get Alcia Colisi to yeah. join government. Mark, good morning. How's it? I'm so well, you know. It was proven again to me over the weekend that looks and dress don't count, okay? So... Common cause and national pride overcame the Listerine outfits that we had to play in <laughs> against the bloody Scotties. It's about leadership. We've got a great captain. It's about Rossi and his attitude towards transformation and many other things. Yeah. And it's about two things, man. Common purpose, got to win, yes. and national pride that gathered us. So, go World Cup. Yeah, that's no, great. I'm looking forward to it. I, I don't want to sort of labor the point, but the thing about rugby, the, the interesting broader thing about rugby in South Africa is just how successful it's been at transformation. Yeah. And that, that's the interesting thing to me is, is how did they get that right? If you started off in 1994 and said, okay, things have got to transform in South Africa, but let me tell you, in 25 years' time, the sport that will be the most transformed will be rugby. I would have yeah. just completely plutzed. You know what I mean? It's a great story, you know, in the making that needs to be told. Yeah, it is. Anyway, let's get on to more local stuff. What do we know? Okay, so now the big story of the past week has been about the state of government finances. Whoa, Lux. It's very clear that the chickens have come home to roost. We've said this before. We've spoken about it before. But even given that, I'm just shocked. Every time I see the numbers coming out, I just... Uh, uh, I just, uh, it's just extraordinary to me. And it shouldn't be because, as we both know, this fiscal crisis has been building for the past decade. For the past decade. Yep. So it's only now that things, you know, are sort of coming to a head. But boy, they really are coming to a head. What's worrying to me is what the talk is about in terms of fixing it. So we're talking about selling state assets, you know. If you sell capital assets to fund current consumption, you will go bust, okay? You might sell assets because they're not valuable anymore and you want the money, but not to fund consumption. So that's the first thing. The second thing is, why are we broke? That's the issue, okay? There's a continuing talk of increased social grants. Are we going to move ever away from funding the purchase of votes towards Funding the growth of the country. That's my question, Tim. Oh, uh, yeah, good questions. The thing that is extraordinary to me is that government policy and government finances are now completely out of whack. They are totally, totally out of whack. Yeah. All of the stuff on the political agenda is heading down, spend more. Everything on the fiscal agenda is spend less. Just to illustrate, I mean, these figures have been around for a while. We've written about them. They've been in the Sunday Times a couple of times, too. The big immediate problem is uh, the SDR grant, which is 350 rand a month. Yeah. It goes to 10 million people, more than that. It's a good idea. For me, you know, I like the idea. Uh, but <laughs> it's costing 60 billion rand a year, right? So now, if you've got no money, if you don't save anything, you only have two choices. The one is to borrow more. The other one is to raise tax. So if you raise VAT by a single percentage point, you would get about half what you need. So you need a two percentage point increase in VAT in order to cover this if you can't get there by uh, saving or borrowing. The question is, which would you rather have? Would you rather have the SDR grant 
which by the way, you know, that's not increasing it in line with inflation, you know, because the, that's more money. But would you rather have a two percentage point increase in VAT or the SDR grant? And boy, I'm glad I don't have to make that decision. Well, you know, you can't have both. So someone has to make that decision. Now, when you talk about 60 billion going to social grants, I also agree with you. We need some support mechanisms. They should start a lot earlier and they should, our plan should be to fund them out of growth in income, not, you know, out of a declining income. There's some structural issues at it. But if you add that to that 60 billion, the 27 billion rand a year that we pay just in servicing interest, I saw we spent 160 billion rand on the the whole uh, Bushisili Makubana thing. I don't even want to talk about that. <laughs> we are sense. wasting money. We are wasting yes. money. It's not yes. like there isn't money. It's being wasted right. and it's being spent on rescue. What we really need, okay, tell me, if I was presiding over this, I'd go, okay, let's call in the business rescue practitioners for government. Now, you know, what does that mean? It means we get some pragmatic a political expertise around the table and we sit down and work out and publish and stick to a plan towards prosperity. Let's call it that. And then we stick to our guns. We seem to have an ad hoc populist reaction towards our financial crisis. And I'm pretty sure that there's a lot of science and smart people in Treasury that are having to deal with pressures non-economic in driving financial and economic decisions. That's got to be immune. That They've got to be immune to political interference. The number that, that really bounced out to me was I was just looking through all of the numbers of government spend and I think one of my colleagues actually came up with this was that, do you know how much South Africa spends on the VIP protection unit? These are the people that drive around in front of and behind all the ministers and politicians and stuff. Yeah. We spend about 1.7 billion rand on them. Okay. How much do you think we spent on the Hawks? We spent 2.2 billion rand on the Hawks. <laughs> I mean, you know, there's so many things that if you just look at them, the, the spending is completely out of whack. Uh, here's the number of it. How much is private sector spending on security and protection? How much money is being spent on the fact that we have a flawed ecosystem? Then it's not productive money. If public transport was in place, if a security was assured, if healthcare was delivered, if education created equal opportunities for everybody, all of those things were solved, which are structural, big systems issues to solve, then all of this other patch-up, wasted, sticky-type money would be saved and could go into growth. That's what the real problem is, that we're spending bad money. You have to have a degree of sympathy and understanding for the people in government here because these choices are really hard. And they're hard because, you know, if you reduce spending on some aspect of society, then, you know, it comes back and it, and it you know, bites you in the buttocks and you, you end up spending more. You know, if you, yeah. if you spent less on health, for example, then you'd have to decide, well, which part of health should we not sort of cover anymore? And then you end up with a whole bunch of people with you know, some great disease. And then it costs you more because then there's pressure on the hospital bills. So there is a kind of secularity to the whole spending process. We can't imagine a better world, but we can avoid making the mistakes you've made. So imagine, because I know we can't imagine. So let's imagine. Okay. Imagine the money that would be saved for reinvestment if we didn't have an electricity crisis. 
Right. Not just the money that we're spending in Eskom and diesel, and those numbers run into hundreds and hundreds of billions. Yes. But then the, 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 the amount that corporate South Africa, business South Africa, consuming South Africa is losing because of load shedding, and the amount of tax revenue that the fiscus is losing because of it's because there is a flaw in the fundamental construct of our economy, and there's not just one. Okay. And so we sit down and we go, let's fix the economy. And then the money will look after itself. Hey, Shimon. You know, there's lots of kind of philosophical points that you can make about this, which should be made. And yeah. for me, yeah. the, the one is yeah. that if you move too fast, sometimes you just make things worse. The key to this is to lean on the pressure points and keep leaning on them. And then all of a sudden, they don't become pressure points. You know, there will be lessons here in crisis management because this is a crisis situation. And, you know, so often in crisis situations, you know, the, your, your problem is equally underreaction and overreaction. Yeah, yeah, I mean, you, we need patience and proper purpose. You can't eat green tomatoes, okay? You have to wait until they ripe. You have to plant them in the right seasons. You have to do all of these kinds of things. This stuff, is this kind of logic, is obvious, you know, to all of us. Maybe we should get Alcia Colisi to, you know, join, yeah. join government and start talking and start talking about, you know, okay, guys, you know, and uh, Russia could join the mix, except we'd have yes. to have beeps going all the time. But you know, uh, uh, we, it can be done. I fundamentally believe it can be done if we yes. can all go control or delete. And the alternative that's going to make it happen, Tim, yes. is an existential crisis that is pervasive and unavoidable. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's, you know, we, we're sort of more or less at that point now. This is why I think this political moment is so interesting. One of the problems is that government income is coming in massively, massively less than anticipated. And the reason for that is completely obvious. It's just about load shedding. And it's load shedding compounded, by the way, because what's happening is that corporates, in an act of desperation, are spending enormous amounts of money either on diesel or on, you know, alternative energy. I mean, you know, it's so interesting. You know, over the past year, cumulatively, South Africans have put in around about four gigawatts of solar generational power. Four gigawatts. That's the same as Madupi. Madupi took 13 years to get into action <laughs> and cost, you know, two, 280 <laughs> billion or whatever it was. So, you know, these, that's, that's why, as he was, you know, we were saying right at the beginning, this is, this is a crisis that has been building for 10 years. Yeah, but I think the immediate solution is not going to be just local capital and local uh, economic policies. We're going to have to make this an investment destination again. Okay, and how do we do that? We have to take away those imposed, particularly South African situations, if I could call them collectively that, that make this an unlevel playing field. You take the Kapawa ship thing, okay? So there you've got a 228 billion rand project. I don't know whether that number is right or wrong, but 114 of it's not going into the project. It's going into the BEE partnership. Okay, that makes for a totally uneven playing field, and it eliminates a whole bunch of choices. We've got to get past those imposed dysregularities, which which have a fundamental inhibiting consequence for attracting foreign capital. Because that's where we're going to that's where we're going to solve it. Foreign direct investment. And so I, I agree with you. Treasury's got a mountain of a job to solve. Can we leave them alone to do it? Can we get all the expertise and add some of the true owners of capital in the room and go, guys, this is how we're going to do it, like it or not? 
I'm afraid we're there, Tim. Eh? Should we talk about the country's finances? <laughs> <laughs> Can we please talk about school? Because I want to just make a small point. This week, one of the big international events was that a very famous author brought out his book on Elon Musk. This is Walter Isaacson. And the book is very interesting about Musk's very early days or his days in South Africa. And there's, there's lots of stuff in there that has been revealed for the first time about, you know, what happened. And, you know, Isaacson spoke to, you know, a bunch of people, including Musk's father, about this event. But the most important thing is that Elon Musk went to the same school as I did. So, you know what I mean? I, I, I think it's important to notice that... Uh, <laughs> you see, education was an equal opportunity situation back in that stage, okay? <laughs> you see, I told you, it was fine. <laughs> You'll never make it, I promise you. I don't think he's ever going to make it. <laughs> I just want to glow a little bit in the vicarious, you know, thing. so, I mean, I, th I presume that other people have also gone to Pretoria Boys High School who sort of make this point. Anyway, the interesting thing was that Musk was really a nerd. He was small and he was beaten up, you know, sort of on a regular basis, not oddly enough at Pretoria Boys High School, but at a different high school at Bryanston High. And he was, he was taken out of Bryanston High because he was beaten up so badly that his father couldn't recognize him and put into Pretoria Boys High. And this was at what Isaacson describes as a wilderness camp, <laughs> which is otherwise known, you know, what we know as felt school. Bridge camp, felt school. Felt school, yeah. Felt school, felt school and felt school, yeah. Look, I mean, I have a sympathy. I went to a similar school where we got on it quite a lot, particularly us English oaks that couldn't be first in rugby. But the pendulum has swung from the elite to the point where I would argue, you know, life is too easy. You know, and, and, and there are no challenges. There's no toughness for these teenagers and there's a serious lack of discipline and it's all solved in the ether and it's not real. And I think that's going to deliver its own problems. But, you know, a, a little bit of toughness within a reasonable construct is a solid core to the big challenges of the world. <laughs> You're sounding a little bit like Elon Musk's father, who apparently, <laughs> so Elon Musk called some guy stupid at school the guy beat him up yeah. uh elon Musk yeah. then goes home and his father stands in front of him for an hour and shouts at him you know i i'm all in favor of you know a little bit of you know discipline and all of that sort of stuff but i mean this his his youth was extreme it really was extreme i sort of remember this from school as well the ethos at school you know, it suited some people. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, there, there were some people who, you know, relished in that sort of competitive environment. And there were some people, you know, like me, <laughs> you know, who played, you know, I, I honestly, actually, honestly, I played in the G team, the G rugby team. Yeah. There were A, B, C, D, E, F, G teams. There wasn't an H team. <laughs> if there wasn't an H team, I, but you know what I mean? I, I mean, I was kind of nerdy too. It was horrible. I mean, I just, and the, and the school seemed to have this kind of ethic about, you know, sort of like toughness, manliness, which, you know, some people like, and some people just hate. I think we've all matured a bit with good reason beyond those primal drivers. Okay. And so, and so that's, that's, that's probably, it's probably a good thing. 
I still make my bed in the morning. It was a discipline I was taught at school. You know? <laughs> yes, I do too, actually. And boarding school in particular, <laughs> it can make people, but it can, of course, break people. Yeah. And that's where parents need to have some wisdom. You know? This is sort of the argument that Isaacson is making, is that in some ways, this awful childhood of mosques, you know, it's sort of, you know, it built in him this kind of pugnaciousness and kind of, competitiveness and a sort of the adjectives can get stronger you know resilience <laughs> revenge i mean you can start you can start building up the side i mean thank god we haven't got an open line on this podcast for psychologists to call in because we the, the lines would be full right now yes no 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 exactly yeah well you know i mean it does it takes a whole basket of stuff Okay, so I've got one number which uh, I just like to throw out there, and that is eighty-five percent. Yeah. So I think it's, I think this is quite in interesting. Is basically researchers are beginning to discover that you should try hard, but not very hard. <laughs> that suits me, but yeah, I'm, I'm right in there. Yeah. <laughs> I'm right in there. I mean, one of my daughter's fabulous girl that she was yeah. uh, always used to say, "Dad, if I get more than fifty percent, I reckon I put too much in it." You know. <laughs> <laughs> yes, 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 yes. But anyway, I thought this is quite an interesting thing that you you know you shouldn't you shouldn't aim for complete perfection. If you aim for complete perfection, it's going to be retrogressive. And uh, you won't hit it and you'll feel worse about it. It's going to uh, ruin you. But if you don't aim for perfection, if you aim for, you know, 85%, you'll make it and feel good about it. I don't know. I think that's an interesting idea. I've always held the hypothesis that perfection is flawed. And I've also held the hypothesis that we like each other, particularly in relationships, because we're able to each embrace one another's flaws. And let me state publicly that I'd be happy to settle for less than 85. Let me state publicly, I, if I hit 85%, I'll be very surprised. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Low achievers that we are. All righty, Mark. Okay, thank you. All right, next week, guys. Next week. This show is part of the Africa Podcast Network. For the biggest pod, pod network, network on, on the continent. continent. For sales inquiries, please, please contact, contact us at info at africapodcastnetwork.com.